Hello all, and a warm welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, episode number 22. I'm Paul, your host and the True Crime Enthusiast of the title, You Guys Are You, and thanks very much for joining me. First timers, I especially hope you enjoy and explore the back catalogue. Whilst all timers at this now, well, you're just all ace, aren't you? So thanks very much, guys. So I've got two more episodes left this series, then I'm having a short break to rest my tones, but rest assured that I shall be working feverishly behind the scenes and I'll be back on a new day of release, True A Crime Thursdays, with the first episode of Season 2 of the podcast dropping on the 5th of April. So I'm not away for too long, I enjoy it too much to be honest. There will of course be the next Patreon exclusive episode dropped before then also, which I recorded last night, and that'll be on the 1st of the month, and on the subject of Patreon, I'd like to thank my show supporters this week, that's Amy Kordiak, Louise Hunter and Tor Hansen. Much obliged and I hope you all enjoy the bonus content available. Thanks also for the continued reviews on different platforms that the show has been getting. Except for the one star anonymous iTunes review that I re- received recently. If someone doesn't like the show or feels that strongly about it, then at least bother to leave constructive criticism explaining why you feel that way then I can maybe change what's so wrong with it. Otherwise, why bother? And by not explaining, nothing can change, and your actions are just pointless, really, if you do that. Conversely, my favourite review of late has to be from Tyrell Luffheed. I hope I've said that right. On Facebook, where the show has been described as like Postman Pat telling you about murder, which I loved. I thought that was absolutely brilliant, and it did make me chuckle. So we also have a special thanks this week as I'm sure that if you follow me on Facebook or are a member of the discussion group on there, you'll have seen that it was my birthday last week. And it was a big birthday, I won't mention how old of course, and had a totally unexpected surprise party thrown for me, which was lovely. There was a lot of hush-hush work that went into it, and a lot of loved ones and old friends came from far and wide to be there. I was made up and proper spoiled with all sorts. And I know that some of them listen here, so thanks very much for that, guys. It meant the absolute world. So because it's been my birthday weekend, I haven't had much time to catch up with any pods, really. But I did catch the latest edition that Cambo has to offer at the True Crime Island, an episode featuring two different cases, which was great. And if you've never listened into the island, I recommend that you do so. It's consistently good, always well-researched and presented. Plus, you learn new sayings like, Boom Fuckalunga. And to be honest, who doesn't like a new swear word? I also enjoyed the first part of a multi-part episode from the Unseen podcast, which covers a truly fascinating case, an unsolved mystery from the 1930s that there's a fair bit to delve into, the Whore Bridge mystery. So head over and catch the first part there. You can find both of these where you get your podcasts from, or there's a handy little link to each in the show notes this week, because I'm good like that, you see. This week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the episode is called The Maniac in the Marigolds, and as it progresses you'll come to see the reasoning why. The episode does deal with three different cases in total, a pair of unsolved murders from the 1960s from Yorkshire, and concluding with a murder for which the killer was brought to justice, and who I believe is a very valid suspect in the two unsolved mentioned here in the episode. As usual, whenever we look at unsolved cases on the show, I'll recount the known facts about the case, and then I'll offer my own theories as to what can be estimated about the killer. I don't profess any deductions to be anything but estimations, of course. I'm not saying my theories are what happened, 
Perhaps though it will make you think, and I could be wrong, but I could be bang on. Please be advised that this episode contains descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing, so discretion is advised. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at three cases and ask the possibility, are these all the work of the maniac in the marigolds? Just shortly after lunchtime on the afternoon of Saturday the 9th of October 1965, 14-year-old schoolgirl Elsie Frost left a home in Manor Hague Road in the town of Lupsit near the West Yorkshire city of Wakefield to go sailing at a nearby lake, the Horbury Sand Quarry or the Millfield Lagoon as it was known locally at the time. By all accounts, Elsie was a happy, well-liked, fun-loving teenager with no known boyfriends She was the middle child of railway worker Arthur and Edith Frost and was growing up in a close-knit, loving, respectable family who did a lot together. Pretty and dark-haired, Elsie was a prefect at Snapethorpe High School in Wakefield. She was a hard-working pupil who had dreams of becoming a teacher and had just been chosen to be the next head girl at her school. Along with some of her other friends, Elsie was a keen and regular sailor and that Saturday she'd been asked to help supervise a group of younger children who were learning how to sail. It was a cold October afternoon and Elsie dressed in a white blouse and yellow sweater, a printed cotton skirt and a red quilted anorak. This was her favourite outfit. Putting her sailing clothes in a duffel bag and saying goodbye to her family, she put on her brand new pair of shoes and set off to go down to the lake which wasn't too far a distance. It was the last time her family were ever to see her alive. At 4.15pm that afternoon, local father Thomas Brown was out for an afternoon walk with his young children and their dog. The family were heading on a path that skirted the River Calder and passed by a canal with a tunnel leading underneath some railway lines. The area was known locally as the ABC Tunnel due to the 26 stone steps that led down to it from the embankment. Upon approaching the tunnel, the family made a horrifying discovery. Thomas Brown was later to describe at the inquest. When we got to within five or ten yards of the bottom of the steps, I saw a girl lay there, who I know now to be Elsie Frost. She was lying with her left arm on the second step, and her head was lying on her left arm, and her right arm was above her head on the next step. She was crouched up in an awkward position with her legs underneath her body in a kneeling type of position but more on her left hand side. I went up to her and asked her what was wrong and got my hands under her armpits and picked her up. When I spoke to her I didn't get any reply. I didn't realise she was as badly injured as she was. At this time my son was at the top of the banking. I tried to persuade the children to go home but they wouldn't. Within minutes, other people had arrived on the scene, and while they waited with Elsie's body, Mr Brown ran to call for an ambulance and the police. The people there included lockkeeper Ralph Brewster and John Blackburn, Elsie's sailing instructor from the lagoon, who was, as would be established at the inquest, the last person to see her alive. Also present was a 19-year-old amateur photographer who'd been taking photographs of the River Calder. Upon arriving... Police cordoned off the scene for examination and removed Elsie's body to Wakefield Public Mortuary where a post-mortem examination was undertaken. A search of the area for a possible murder weapon or bloodstained clothes got underway and the standard police house-to-house inquiries began. 
The post-mortem examination was to find that Elsie had been stabbed five times, twice in the back, twice in the head, and once through the hand as she tried to shield herself from her killer, with a fatal blow piercing her heart. She had not been sexually assaulted, and the pathologist concluded that she was in fact still a virgin at the time of death. Cause of death was given as shock and hemorrhage due to multiple stab wounds. Seven hours after she had left home that afternoon, her father had to visit Wakefield Public Mortuary to identify her body. The Frost family was left shocked and stunned and reeling from what had happened, so much so that Elsie's parents went to stay at her older sister's house and both were to need sedation. Whilst they tried to come to terms with what had happened, the massive manhunt for Elsie's killer continued, with Scotland Yard even lending support and officers to the hunt. Piecing together Elsie's final known movements, it was established that she had chosen to walk home a different way to the rest of her friends, taking the route that led along the towpath and through the 30-foot ABC tunnel to avoid scuffing and dirtying in new shoes. It appeared that the attack had happened as Elsie walked through the tunnel, where she was savagely attacked from behind in the darkness. Despite her grave injuries, Elsie had managed to stumble through the tunnel to the bottom of the steps, where she collapsed and died just minutes before being found by Thomas Brown and his children. A trail of blood leading from the place where Elsie was stabbed in the middle of the tunnel to the bottom of the ABC steps confirmed this. The hunt for Elsie's killer was heavily publicised in the national press in the weeks following the murder, with fear and suspicion cast especially across the community of Lupset, who were understandably uneasy with the thought of having a brutal killer in their midst and it had a knock-on effect. Children who could once play free now found themselves kept an eye on and curfewed, and such activities as scouts or brownies were extra supervised. Police had gone door-to-door questioning every man who lived in the area, with some 12,000 in all spoken to, and a reconstruction of Elsie's last loan movements that day had been made. Many people seen near the ABC steps that day were traced and spoken to, but were ultimately all eliminated from the inquiry. A tan-coloured 12-inch leather knife sheath with a stag's head motif had been found tossed over a wall near to the murder scene, but a knife that matched it was either missed or never found, despite many knives being taken and tested as a potential murder weapon during the routine questioning. Several people also reported seeing a bearded hitchhiker in a nearby road and a well-dressed driver of an Austin Cambridge car that was parked near the scene near the time of the murder. Neither of these men were ever traced. The film from the young amateur photographer's camera who was near the scene at the time had also been examined in case the pictures provided any clues, but this again drew a blank. Ultimately, all who were spoken to were eliminated from the inquiry. As is standard, even members of Elsie's family were repeatedly spoken to and asked to provide their movements on the day of the murder. Elsie's former brother-in-law was one of those questioned and was to describe it years later. We were put under a lot of pressure, where we were at what times, when we had last seen Elsie. It wasn't just that they asked you once, they would come back a week later and ask you all over again, but with a slightly different phraseology to try to catch you out. They interviewed everyone. Before the questioning, everyone was pointing fingers at each other. My wife trusted me, I think she accepted the fact that I was going to be questioned because everyone was. The police had a job to do. The inquest into Elsie's death was held in January 1966 and many people gave evidence. 
One of these was John Blackburn, the teacher who oversaw the school sailing club and who was the last person to see Elsie. He told the inquest, I beckoned to Elsie and took her out in a boat to give her some instruction, as she had previously got into difficulties when navigating one of the boats. I was out with Elsie Frost in the boat until about five minutes to four. She then helped me to pack away the boats before leaving. By the time the inquest was held, there was still no definitive motive for the killing, although many motives had been suggested and examined. The evidence pointed to an opportunistic crime, a random attack, but the savagery of the wounds Elsie received suggested an attack that was deeply personal and committed by someone filled with anger and hatred. A possible secret boyfriend who killed her after a row was suggested, and perhaps more intriguingly incredibly, it was suggested that Elsie could have been murdered to silence her after stumbling upon two men indulging in homosexual activity while she was walking home. Homosexuality was unlawful in the UK until 1967 after all, so this is a very potential motive really. Whilst the clear motive could never be established, the coroner's jury did believe that it could name the culprit. So the role of the inquest at that time could accuse a named person of murder, rather than just the role it plays nowadays which is to establish certain facts and a cause of death. Indeed, newspapers the following day reported, Elsie man accused of murder. The accused was 33-year-old Ian Spencer, a former railway fireman and labourer who had actually given evidence and appeared at the inquest as a witness. Spencer had been in the area of the murder on that Saturday afternoon, but had insisted that he had been home at least 45 minutes before the murder occurred. His wife, his mother-in-law and a family friend could all confirm this, but they were never called by the coroner to speak at the inquest. The finger of suspicion was pointed at Simpson when subsequent inquest witnesses contradicted his story and they claimed that they thought they had seen him close to the area where Elsie's body was found at around the crucial time. The jury decided unanimously that the cause of death was murder and that there is a prima facie case against Ian Bernard Spencer. Basically Spencer was being accused of the crime and was committed to face trial. He spent more than two months in custody before being cleared at a magistrate's court. It was here that it was concluded that there was no case to answer and the jury were instructed to find Spencer not guilty. He was released but his wrongful arrest and the subsequent case of mudsticking was to forever blight him. Police were to visit Spencer in the following years whenever another murder occurred to ascertain his movements, leading him to feel the need to document his exact movements always for alibi in a series of notebooks. Imagine having to do that, that's just crazy isn't it? Simpson documented dates, times, places he'd been and even the exact mileage of his car. This practice continued for many years, long into his retirement, and it only stopped after a series of strokes led him to be taken into a residential care home, where he remains to this day. When interviewed about his accusation by a local newspaper many years after the murder, Spencer's family said, This has followed him all his life, and we want him to be left alone. I understand that Elsie's family want closure, but we do not want his name dragged up every time. He is not a murderer, he was never convicted of anything. He is one of the softest, kindest people I know, but he has had to live with this most of his life. It's not fair, he is an old man and deserves to have his last years in peace. Our family deserves to put it behind us as he never did anything and was cleared. 
But back in 1966, when Simpson was cleared, police were forced to admit that they were back at square one with their investigation. And it's not just Ian Simpson who suffered painfully because of Elsie's murder. Her family never really recovered from her death. Her father couldn't even bring himself to discuss the murder or even to view photographs of Elsie after she died. It was just too painful. Both of her parents are now dead. Her mother Edith passed away in 1988 and her father Arthur passed away in 2003. But her brother and sister are still alive and they've long pushed for the investigation into Elsie's murder to be reopened to try to gain some closure for the family and justice for Elsie. They have of course never forgotten their sister nor has the local community. On the 50th anniversary of Elsie's death St George's Church in Lupset was packed with more than 100 mourners and the touching tribute of 14 doves were released in Elsie's memory. That's a dove for each year of her life. Finally, her murder was the subject of an investigative BBC Radio 4 programme in 2015, which resulted in an encouraging amount of new information being received. This helped reopen the investigation later that year, and the possible theories concerning Elsie's murder were reviewed in context with the new information. It makes for fascinating listening, and links to the full programme covering the case can be found in this week's show notes. A line of appeal focused in this 2015 reinvestigation is the identity of a man who was seen cycling near to the murder scene around the time Elsie was killed. This man was described as a white male, 25 to 30 years old and riding a black bike with a basket on the front and wearing a white lab type coat, possibly of the style then worn by someone who could have been a delivery boy, butcher or abattoir worker. There was also a line of inquiry to try to establish the identity of a man seen near the murder scene at around the crucial time that day. He was described by Detective Chief Inspector Elizabeth Belton as A common description of a person of interest which has come from some of the calls has been of a man wearing a brown, potentially duffel type coat with dark hair who was seen on the canal towpath. He was of medium to thin build and in his early 20s. He was described as carrying a bag by some witnesses and was possibly of what was described as scruffy or a student type appearance. Similar theories that were examined 50 years previously were also re-examined, including the mystery boyfriend theory, but there's still no evidence to support this and a further blow to the investigation comes with the reports that police have never retained Elsie's bloodstained clothing. They were either destroyed or returned to a grieving family, so there is nothing that a possible workable DNA sample of a killer can be attained from, even though technology now exists that would make this possible. Most of the original files from the 1965 investigation have now also been destroyed, and perhaps most frustratingly, the file on Elsie's murder has been closed at the National Archives until 2060, for reasons that are at best unclear. It's the latest hurdle in a crime in which so many details remain unexplained. So what then can be the motive for Elsie's killing? I think this was a crime committed in either a rage or out of fear. That explains the savagery of the killing. It's likely, or would at least be expected, that a boyfriend would have been known by someone, if not by Elsie's family, then at least by one of her friends. And I consequently do not believe this is a serious line of inquiry although I understand the need to investigate it as an avenue. 
The fact that she was still a confirmed virgin when she died would also suggest the mystery boyfriend to be a null line of inquiry. I feel it more likely that Elsie was chosen at random by a sex offender in the area at the time. The absence of rape or attempted sexual assault should not discount a sexual motive in this murder. It's more likely that the killer had to flee. Several reports were commonplace of men flashing, exposing themselves to women and girls for sexual kicks. So did someone expose themselves to Elsie and then chase the frightened girl, killing her to save themselves being caught and identified? Was this possibly someone she knew or recognised? And was it the man in the duffel coat? The theory of Elsie having disturbed two men is also of course completely possible. Several theories do abound and there's much more in-depth research concerning the case than is recapped here for those interested to delve in and form their own conclusion. I recommend the links in the show notes this week for those interested in reading more. During my own research for the episode, I did come across several theories presented and these range from responsibility for the crime being laid at the feet of notorious and familiar names from British crime such as Peter Sutcliffe, Ian Brady, even stretching as far as Jimmy Savile to reported cover-ups concerning the investigation by the West Yorkshire Police. Frustratingly, as to why so much emphasis was given to Ian Spencer as being a suspect in the murder, you could be led to strongly suspect that Spencer was the unfortunate victim of a case of having a suspect in the frame with police choosing to fit evidence around the suspect in mind. And come on, West Yorkshire police do have a bit of a reputation, don't they? Indeed, it's fortunate that a higher authority decided to see sense and that there was no case to answer concerning Spencer's guilt. Otherwise, the annals of victims of miscarriages of justice would have had another name added to the lists, along with the Stephen Downings and the Stephen Kishkos of this world. In 2016, a 78-year-old man was arrested in Berkshire in connection with Elsie's murder and released on police bail, however was subsequently re-arrested in March 2017. It is reported that a file was sent to the Crown Prosecution Service for consideration in charging him with Elsie's murder, but there's no further report available as to the status of this consideration. Now, the guy arrested is an already convicted murderer and sex offender, and on the 25th of August 2017, he was charged with a rape and abduction in Deep Car in 1972. But had Elsie's killer struck just a year before, with a victim of similar age and a relatively short geographical distance from her killing, just a few miles down the M1 motorway. We head now to Maltby near Rotherham and 17 months previously in May 1964. 13-year-old Anne Dunwell had been visiting her aunt in Bramley, which is just a few miles outside Rotherham in South Yorkshire, with whom she'd been planning to stay for a few days. Anne lived with her grandparents in the nearby village of Whiston and on the evening of Wednesday the 6th of May 1964 she decided to return to their home in Sandringham Avenue to keep her grandmother company as her grandfather was working a night shift that night. At 9.15pm she left the friends that she had been with that evening and made her way to the bus stop opposite the Ball Inn in Bramley to catch the 9.29pm bus that would take her back home to Whiston. Anne never caught that bus, and she never made it back to Whiston. At 7.30am the following morning, a lorry driver travelling to work, Thomas Wilson, made a gruesome discovery whilst driving down Slade Hooton Lane, a winding and remote country lane between the villages of Carr and Slade Hooton. He was later to describe the scene. 
I was driving down the lane when I saw what I thought was a tailor's dummy with its feet in the hedge and back on the manure heap. I thought it was a practical joke and drove on. When I got to work, I told my brother-in-law what I had seen and to make sure we drove back. We went within two yards of the body, which had a stocking round its neck, and noticed that the legs were badly bruised. There were also bruises on the face, and the arms seemed as if they'd been placed behind the back. The body was that of a young female, and was naked except for a pair of stockings wrapped tightly around the neck. It was some hours later revealed to be the body of Anne Dunwell, and a post-mortem was to reveal that she had suffered a savage sexual attack, before ultimately being strangled with her own stockings. No other clothing was found near the body. A massive police hunt was immediately launched, with a mass widespread search of the surrounding areas being undertaken, and inquiries made in the area to try to establish Anne's final movements. Within a week, hundreds of actions had been completed, and thousands of statements had been taken. Anne's last known movements were traced, and it was established that she never caught the 9.29pm bus. No one on the bus could recall a girl matching her description being there. Someone matching her description was seen near the bus stop at around the crucial time, however. Had she been abducted off the street, or had she got into a car after accepting a lift from her killer? Anne's family firmly believed that she would never have accepted a lift from a stranger, so police worked on the theory that Anne had either been forcibly snatched from the bus stop, or must have begun to walk towards home and had accepted a lift from her killer, who must have been someone she knew. Detective Chief Superintendent Clifford Lodge, who was leading the murder hunt, issued the following chilling statement. We have a beast at large who was killed once, and will possibly try to kill again. Five days into the investigation, the search moved to Ully Reservoir, which was some six miles from where Anne's body was found. Walkers round the reservoir had found some items of clothing, including a pale blue coat with a Peter Pan-type collar at the water's edge, and this was soon identified as belonging to Anne. A specialist team of police frogmen from Nottingham searched the reservoir and they were soon to find other items that were identified as having belonged to Anne. This included the distinct wicker basket that she was carrying when last seen alive. It was many years later, thanks to advancements in forensic science, that the clothing was to provide useful evidence and insight into Anne's killer. Detectives were also left to sift through a multitude of potential suspects, suspect vehicles and potentially crucial sightings. After an appeal had been made to courting couples who possibly been in the area of the murder scene at the time and therefore may have seen something of relevance to come forward, one such couple did. They reported seeing a dark-haired man, sharp-featured and about 18 to 25 years old, and a girl parked in a blue saloon car at about 11 o'clock p.m. in a clearing in Slacks Lane, which is a lane near the bus stop where Anne was last seen. The courting couple remembered the sighting vividly, because the couple in the saloon car had been what they described as struggling, and their car headlights had picked this out as they'd passed. The struggling couple were never identified or came forward for elimination. Was this Anne and her killer? By the end of May, detectives were no further in their investigation, despite having spoken to more than 10,000 people during the inquiry. They did, however, have a suspect that they wished to trace, and an identikit picture was placed in the local press. This man, known as Pete, was described as being aged between 21 and 27 years of age, of medium build and between 5 foot 5 and 5 foot 6 inches tall, with a thin pockmarked face and nose. 
He had short, dark brown hair that was worn in a wavy, brushed-back style, and he was clean-shaven. The man also drove a dark grey minivan and was known to offer lifts to young girls, including pupils of Wickersley Secondary Modern, which was Anne's school. Several names were given to the incident room as a potential identity for Pete, and although these were investigated, no arrests were made and the identity of Pete could not be ascertained. Despite the massive investigation, no arrests were forthcoming and the inquiry into Anne's murder was gradually scaled down until it remained a cold case for many years. However, with the advances in investigative work and forensic science, in 2002 South Yorkshire Police reopened the inquiry with the full support of Anne's surviving family. The original statements and actions were looked at and an appeal about and reconstruction of Anne's last known movements was shown on Crime Watch UK. Now you knew that I couldn't go possibly two weeks without mentioning Crime Watch. Bloody silly BBC for cancelling it. Even after all this time, new witnesses came forward offering information following the appeal. Because Crime Watch was good like that after all, wasn't it? Very useful, very helpful. These witnesses included a woman who was 15 at the time of Anne's murder, who went to school with her and who had seen her on the night she died walking along Bawtry Road in Wickersley, heading towards Whiston at about 9.45pm. This seemed to confirm police suspicions that Anne had never boarded the bus that evening and had instead begun to walk towards home. She was halfway home when she met her killer. Why this woman never came forward originally has never been explained. And I couldn't understand this myself. I mean, if somebody you went to school with was murdered and it was a high-profile investigation like that and you'd seen them on that night, then you would remember it and you'd come forward. Of course you would. Don't understand that totally. Also highlighted after this reappeal was a different person of interest alongside Pete that was also never traced and who rapidly became the prime suspect in Anne's murder. A witness who had been spoken to at the time of the original 1964 investigation was re-interviewed about her statement and was now able to provide additional information. The witness had described seeing a girl, likely Anne, walking towards a van parked near the Ball Inn on the evening of Anne's murder. In addition, this witness now recalled that the driver of the van was wearing shiny cufflinks. Now this became significant because it tallied with other descriptions of a person of interest who was reported in 1964 but one who was never traced. This man was seen crucially in the Ball Inn just a week before Anne was killed where a barmaid recalled serving in brandy. The witness who gave the description recalled talking at length to the man who he recalled mentioning that he had worked in Rotherham and Doncaster at times. The Ball Inn held live entertainment on a Wednesday evening at the time and was consequently always full of people who travelled from the Sheffield and Doncaster areas from all over really. So yet despite so many people, this man stood out and he was remembered. He talked about psychology at length and gave off the impression that he was well educated. He was also chain smoking Craven A cigarettes which he kept in a silver case and he wore distinctive jewellery. This was a distinctive ring with a blue coloured stone worn on the middle finger of his left hand. A gold wristwatch with round black face and gold Roman numerals and hands on a gold expanding bracelet and cufflinks that were described as having a gold surround with a red design of a female carrying an open umbrella. Now that's very, very specific, isn't it? That's very significant. How was that not remembered? 
A detailed physical description was given of the man, and he was described as in his mid-twenties and five foot seven inches tall, with a slim build and dark eyes. He had short auburn hair and spoke with a soft Scottish accent, which police believe could be from the Inverness area. He was wearing a dark green suit, checked shirt, tan shoes and cufflinks. And the man was also driving a small van that may have been grey, green or blue. This matched with several other descriptions of vehicles that police wished to trace and eliminate from the inquiries, including a small grey or light green van that was seen parked on a small track near a disused mill on Green Lane at about 10.15pm on the night of Anne's murder. This is just 200 yards from where Anne's body was found early the next morning, but the driver of the van was never traced. Surprisingly, for such a detailed description, the Scots guy was never traced. It seems remarkable that police were aware of this guy back in 1964, but they could never find him. Perhaps it's worth remembering here, without attempting to sound so critical, that policing was very different back then, and it was down to old-fashioned door-knocking rather than the tools today's investigators have at their disposal. Perhaps it was the poor information management and filing system, with sheer vastness of information, details of sightings of vehicles and persons received, that it meant that many such a crucial person was lost in the mix. It would be more than 10 years later when these problems were more tragically highlighted, and again concerning Yorkshire police with the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper. Perhaps the most important breakthrough in the reopened inquiry in 2002 was the obtaining of a workable DNA profile from the clothing that had been used to strangle Anne. Forensic scientists were able not only to obtain a DNA sample of the killer from traces of semen found in the knots, but were also able to show that the killer suffered from gonorrhea. But a match for an existing profile on the National DNA Database for the killer has so far proved negative. Medical confidentiality has frustratingly also provided a stumbling block and closed off a possible avenue of investigation for the police, as Anne's killer would have had to have required medical treatment for such a condition. So what then can be said about Anne's killer? Whilst both the Scotsman and Pete remain important persons of interest that require eliminating from the investigation, you've got to bear in mind that the physical descriptions of each of these persons was made more than 50 years ago. This effectively renders each description as useless now, unless someone can provide solid, reliable evidence that names a person that matched all or many of the aspects of the descriptions whom they reliably and with reason have grounds to suspect. Then, of course... Depending upon if the person is still living, which is only a possibility now due to the passage of time, a simple DNA test would be able to incriminate or exonerate such a person. It's likely that Anne's killer was from or familiar with the Yorkshire area and expressly familiar with the areas of Bramley and Whiston. The key locations to the case are all within a relatively small geographic area and the area where Anne's body was dumped is remote and suggests a local knowledge, someone either having lived around the area or worked there. The reservoir where her clothes were dumped also suggests this. Of course, as the killer had a vehicle, this is not an offender necessarily confined just to these areas. He could have come from further afield. But offenders do tend to operate in areas of comfort and familiarity to them. It's likely that Anne's killer had offended before, although he may never have been arrested before. If he had, it would have been most likely for sexual offences or offences of violence. He was, or is, certainly a violent man, and one likely that would have experience at approaching young girls or be practised at enticing young girls into a vehicle. 
If Anne was last definitively seen halfway home at 9.45pm that evening, then she was taken very close to home from a relatively busy main road. No screams were reported as being heard, meaning that he was either very good at quickly restraining Anne, or was good at being charming and appearing genuine and non-threatening, and gave her no cause to be wary. It is of course a sad fact that 50 years ago young girls were especially less wary about accepting lifts from strangers but perhaps he wasn't a stranger, perhaps Anne knew him well enough to accept a lift. So the killer had access to a vehicle, perhaps a car but more than likely a van of some type. A van would offer ample room within the back to commit a rape or a physical assault. Police reinvestigating the crime in 2002 released details that would seem to support this. When Anne's clothing was recovered from Ully Reservoir, it was of course dirty and covered in silt, but it also contained traces that led detectives to believe that Anne had come into contact with foundry slag or coal dust residue at the time of her death. This was a very house-proud girl who was wearing her brand new favourite coat that night. She certainly willingly would have not got it dirty. It is possible that she met her death in the back of a vehicle or perhaps a building where such materials were kept. Minivans of similar description and colour were reported frequently around the general area on the night of her murder, including the important sighting of one just 200 yards away from where her body was found at around the time she was last seen alive. Plus of course the killer required a vehicle to transport Anne's clothes to where they were found 6 miles away. It is likely that the vehicle sighted at 10.15pm parked just 200 yards away from where the body was found was the killer's vehicle. It's just a few miles from where she was picked up by her killer and if she had accepted a lift just a short distance from home only to be taken elsewhere she would have surely panicked. This would mean that the killer would have had to restrain her immediately or at least after a short time. It was likely that she was raped and strangled shortly after she was taken and was left at the body site just a short time later. The time into this would fit perfectly within the 30 minute window of Anne being last seen if of course it was her sighted walking towards Whiston at 9.45pm to the vehicle being sighted parked on Green Lane. That's a 30 minute window. More than 50 years have now passed since Anne Dunwell met her killer whilst walking home that Wednesday evening in May 1964 and her killer has never yet been brought to justice. It remains the oldest unsolved murder on the files of South Yorkshire Police. Someone known to her would have been more than likely highlighted as a suspect, barring sheer fluke or very poor police work. The information was seemingly there at the time of the initial investigation, although in 1964 the benefit of computing and the modern day Holmes investigative system were not available. With today's tools of detection, it would be very likely that Anne's killer would be identified and would face trial for his crime. Indeed, there exists a profile of him on the DNA database and several reports exist of varying stages in the investigation. Some reports say that following the reinvestigation, the pool of suspects in Anne's murder had been narrowed down to just two suspects, both of whom were now dead. Other more recent reports would claim that an elderly sex killer who has been securely detained for more than 45 years now is being looked at as a significant person of interest in Anne's murder. For further information concerning the case, I thoroughly recommend author Scott Lomax's Unsolved Murders in South Yorkshire book. Within it, the author covers Anne's murder and details both the original investigation and the reinvestigation in great depth. It makes for an informative and well-researched read, and of course, there is a link in the show notes this week. 
This is an absolutely horrendous crime, and Anne's family have suffered greatly over the years because of her callous murder. Her grandmother was to have a nervous breakdown because of it, and Anne's father's health gravely declined in the years following his daughter's murder. Each of them went to their grave sadly, not knowing who was responsible, and it's finally left to Anne's only surviving relative, her sister Irene Hall, to fight for justice for her sister and to ensure that Anne is not forgotten. Speaking on the 50 year anniversary of Anne's murder, Irene told how the crime still affects the family. We are truly grateful to all of those who have already helped the police, but I appeal to those who, for their own reasons, have kept information to themselves for so long. Anyone who knows anything about the death of Anne, however small or trivial that they think it may be, please contact the police. It is possible that the person responsible may now be dead, but did they admit what they'd done? Please, if anyone can help us finally get justice for Anne, have the courage to make that call. We can only hope that one day Anne's murderer will be identified, giving us closure on a 50-year nightmare and allowing Anne to finally be at peace. So in both the cases of Anne and Elsie, it's been mentioned that an incarcerated sex killer has long been a suspect in each case, and at least in the case of Elsie Frost, he's twice been arrested by police in connection with a murder. So the following is his story, and the horrific murder of a young girl that was to gain him life imprisonment and earn him the title of the Maniac in the Marigolds. Thursday the 13th of July 1972 was almost the start of the summer holidays for the pupils of Woomwell High School in the small South Yorkshire town of Woomwell near Barnsley. It should have been a glorious time where children and teenagers of the area could let their hair down and enjoy over a month of free time like all children do between school years. Instead, the summer holidays, and indeed the area still to this day, will always be marked by how the community was shocked by the vicious sex killing of a popular and hard-working schoolgirl, Shirley Ann Boldy. Shirley was 14 in 1972, living with her parents Norman and Edna in a respectable semi-detached house in Woomwell's Hemingfield Road. She was described as an attractive girl, slim-built and blonde-haired, who was popular and had many friends. Shirley also had a boyfriend, 14-year-old Ian Morris, who she'd been seeing for only about two months. She was Norman and Edna's youngest child, with her elder brother Simon away studying at Cambridge University for a degree in Spanish. Reflecting her brother's academic success, Shirley was a bright and hard-working student who was regularly top of her class. Her end-of-term report for 1972 read, Always gives her best. Shirley should do well next year. Shirley was sadly never to get another school report. So Thursday the 13th of July 1972 was nearly the end of the school year, and as was her normal routine, Shirley had set off for home for lunch after finishing morning lessons at school, walking home with Ian before they parted ways and he went off to his own home on Huff Lane. The journey to and from school each day would habitually be made with Ian and other friends and classmates, but that day the usual group of friends she walked with had stayed behind in school for lunch, and Ian was off for the afternoon. Shirley had lunch at home as usual, and then left to return to school at about 12.45pm. When Shirley hadn't arrived home about by about 5pm, her parents thought that she'd remained behind in school to attend an end-of-term concert. 
However, a telephone call to the school found that this wasn't the case, and her father reported her to the police as missing. A massive intense search was undertaken, one that involved tracker dogs and that spread to the nearby districts of Mar, High Melton and Pilly Hill. It was just 12 hours after she'd been reported missing, early in the morning of the 14th of July 1972, that Shirley's body was found in Pilly Woods. She'd been brutally raped, throttled and stabbed to death. But police already had Shirley's killer in custody. He'd been arrested late the previous evening and had led police to her body. At about 3 o'clock p.m. the previous day, two hours after Shirley had kissed her mother goodbye for what was unknowingly the last time, three men were doing groundwork in a remote area near the small village of Barnborough, about seven miles away from Woomwell. The three men saw a white minivan reverse into a gap in the cliffside and at first thought it may be a courting couple as the spot was popular with them. When the men got nearer to the van, they saw a disturbing sight through the rear window. A teenage girl lay in the back, naked from the waist down but still wearing white socks and sandals. A wild-eyed man, wearing yellow marigold gloves, was moving about in the van and he held a large kitchen knife. The men heard a scream and saw the girl's legs kicking and shaking. Trying to intervene, one of the workmen thumped on the roof of the van and another threw a log at it, but the wild-eyed man managed to drive off at high speed, almost hitting them. They did manage to record the number plate of the vehicle and went to report what they'd witnessed straight to police. At 8.35pm that evening, the van was traced and the man in possession of the van was arrested by police in Woomwell. He confessed to Shirley's murder in the early hours, saying... I have committed an irrevocable act. I have taken the life of an innocent child. Oh God, I have wanted to tell you all night. And he led police to the site he had dumped her body at early the next morning. The man's name was Peter Joseph William Pickering, a 34-year-old unemployed convicted sex offender who had an appalling record of previous offending and who had already previously served prison sentences for rape, attempted rape, indecent assault and causing grievous bodily harm. He had been free just five months after being released from this latest nine-year prison sentence that he had been serving since being arrested for these sex attacks in Doncaster and Scarborough in 1966. Upon his release, Pickering had returned to live with his mother, whom he shared a relationship with that was described as intense in a large semi-detached house in Woomwell. Prior to his arrest in 1966, he'd passed himself off as a theatrical agent, using the ruse of offering a chance at stardom to be able to approach vulnerable teenage girls for sex. Conversely, for someone responsible for such horrific crimes, Pickering was described as softly spoken, and even described himself as being a peace-loving Buddhist. On his right arm, a tattoo read, Fear God and Honour the Queen. Pickering appeared at Doncaster West Riding Court on Saturday the 15th of July 1972, charged with the murder of Shirley Ann Baldy and was remanded in custody for a week. He wept continuously throughout the four-minute hearing and again appeared before magistrates a week later, where details of what Pickering had told police a week before were revealed. The prosecuting solicitor, Stuart Robinson, told magistrates that after confessing to Shirley's murder, Pickering had taken police on a tour, going to the site in Pilly Woods where he had dumped Shirley's body, the spot where he had abducted her near a home in Hemingfield, a spot near Howell Wood in Billingley where he had stripped and brutally raped her, and finally to the spot at Barnborough Cliffs where he had killed Shirley and where his van had been seen by the three workmen. Pickering was remanded in custody awaiting trial for murder and the solicitor acting for him, Mr Ralph Cunliffe, said that Pickering had no objections about being kept in custody, adding, 
This man is ill and is being kept in a prison hospital. He has no complaint about his treatment. Pickering appeared at Sheffield Crown Court in December 1972, where he pleaded guilty to the manslaughter of Shirley Ann Baldy by means of diminished responsibility. Lead counsellor for the prosecution, Mr Barry Mortimer QC, told the presiding judge, Mr Justice McKenna, The facts of the case are quite the worst and most appalling I have ever had to do with, and I dare say that they will come high in that way with your lordship. They were subhuman acts that could only be described as the acts of a monster. Christened by the press as the maniac in the marigolds, the cause heard how Pickering had been driving around in his van when he had spotted Shirley, dressed in her blue and white school dress, walking across a field on her way back to school. He had forced her into the van, tied her hands with twine, and then driven the terrified girl seven miles away to Howell Wood. It was there that he had stripped and savagely raped her, then continued driving around aimlessly for more than an hour. During this drive, he decided to kill Shirley to silence the only witness to the crime and drove to the remote spot at Barnborough Cliffs to do so. He attempted to manually strangle Shirley before untying her hands and using the twine to do so. Finally, he stabbed her in the heart with a kitchen knife, but he was spotted doing this, which led to police tracing him and to his arrest. Pickering himself tried to excuse his actions by claiming that he had desperately sought psychiatric help while serving time in prison, but this had been refused. He also sought to allocate blame to his mother, saying in court, My mother is to blame for all this. She has possessed me. She would never let me have another woman and always tried to destroy any relationship I had with other females. Pickering then described what had driven him and emphasised his remorse. It was my mother that I was killing. I could see my mother when I was doing it. They knew I would do this when I left prison. I nearly cured myself and in a short time I would have been cured, but something snapped when I saw the girl walking across a field. The biggest feeling I had was not elation. It was just a feeling of destroying my mother. I've mentioned over the years I wanted help. I know I'm ill. I feel nothing but remorse for what I've done. I was in an indescribable mood from which I have always been able to hold myself in check, but this time I felt like exploding. The devastated family of Shirley Ann Baldy were in court to hear Pickering's sickening confession, listening as he went on. She mentioned something about her mother and something snapped inside of me. I tore the clothes off her. I was out of my mind. The least I can do is keep the girl's good name. She fought hard and never asked for any of this. She was a pure girl. That must be so sickening to have heard, mustn't it? Unbelievable. Pickering's defence counsel, Mr Geoffrey Baker QC, described Pickering as suffering from a severe mental illness, telling Mr Justice McKenna, It is my submission that this man is sick. He claims that years of indifference to his illness, the ignoring of his pleas for treatment in prison, refusals of help in the sense of getting medical treatment, also being approached by police every time a child was attacked. All this has caused a complete mental breakdown and so led to this final sick outburst. He instructs me to ask your lordship, though he realises the chances of small, to consider a period of probation with a condition of residence of 12 months. That residence, of course, would be in hospital. Yeah, I know if you don't ask, you don't get, but come on, a year? The judge concurred, but instead ordered Pickering to be detained in Broadmoor Hospital in Berkshire, committed indefinitely to secure custody. 
He was eventually moved first to Merseyside's Ashworth High Security Hospital in 1976, then to Towers Psychiatric Unit in Leicester, and finally to lower security Thornford Park Hospital in Berkshire. Now he's nearly 80 years old and he remains there to this day. Surprisingly for such horrific crimes, the name Peter Pickering is largely unfamiliar with the student of true crime. There's relatively little information readily available for research concerning his crimes, but he has been back in the press in recent years. In the mid-1990s, he was back in the press when it was reported that he was being allowed escorted trips out to shopping centres in an effort to reintroduce Pickering back into the community, should there come a time that he was deemed well enough to be freed. This was a move that angered people who remembered his crimes and in a wave of protest, more than 8,000 people in Woonwell signed a petition demanding that Pickering never be freed. And arguably with good reason, because it's emerged that he's a suspect in other unsolved murders stemming from the 1960s. As mentioned, he's been arrested on a number of occasions by detectives investigating the unsolved murder of Elsie Frost, as well as being looked at as a person of interest in the unsolved murder of Anne Dunwell. On the 25th of August 2017, Pickering was also charged with a rape and abduction in deep car in 1972 and he's awaiting trial concerning this and it is reported that police have also submitted a file on Pickering to the Crown Prosecution Service to ascertain whether charges can be brought against him concerning the murder of Elsie Frost. Is Pickering a serious suspect in the murders of both Anne Dunwell and Elsie Frost then? I believe very much so, and I believe that aside from these crimes, he could also be considered a possible suspect in another unsolved murder, that's the case of a girl called Mavis Hudson, who was murdered in Chesterfield in December 1966. Although in the latter case, it's possible that Pickering may have been imprisoned at the time of the offence. Details of the timeline of his imprisonment in the 60s are scarce, and exact dates and times can't be pinpointed, although any reinvestigation of the Hudson case by police could easily ascertain these dates and Pickering could be subsequently simply be ruled out as a person of interest or eliminated due to being imprisoned. For those interested in learning about the Hudson case, an account of the murder and original investigation can be found in another of Scott Lomax's books, Unsolved Murders in Derbyshire, and again a link to which will be placed in the show notes this week. Pickering is seriously looked at by police as a person of interest in the murders of Anne and Elsie and are these murders connected? Firstly, as I said at the start of the episode, I in no way attempt to suggest that the following is definitive. It is, of course, pure hypothesis based upon a comparing and contrasting examination of each case. I am, however, convinced that Pickering is responsible for other crimes, apart from those he's already served time for before his incarceration for the murder of Shirley Ann Baldy. So firstly, what suggests that he's a person of interest concerning these murders? Well, there's the relatively short geographical distance between each of the crimes. It's just 33 miles is the furthest between any murders. There is on the show notes a link to a Google map showing the locations of the crimes that Pickering is known to have committed, the 1972 rape and abduction that he awaits trial for, and the locations of the murders of both Anne Dunwell and Elsie Frost. Check out the geography, it's much more than possible. It is, of course, possible that there are two separate killers responsible for each of these unsolved crimes and of course there are killers who have operated over the length and breadth of the UK for example Peter Sutcliffe, Peter Tobin but criminals do tend to operate within areas they're comfortable with they have a hunting ground 
and the locations marked on the map constitute a relatively short geographical catchment area for more than a single predator to operate within. Pickering is known to have had access to a van and therefore access to travel to offend. Each of the victims is an attractive teenage girl which was known to be Pickering's victim of preference and each was attacked in an opportunistic crime when each was alone. In two out of the three murders a vehicle was used as either the location of the assault or certainly to transport the victim. The attacks on each were very savage. Anne was raped and strangled. Elsie was stabbed. Pickering's first confirmed victim, Shirley Ann Baldy, was raped, strangled and then stabbed to death. Elsie was not raped or sexually assaulted but this should in no way detract from her murder having a likely sexual motivation. It's more likely, as we previously said, that Elsie's killer was disturbed and fled before a sexual assault could take place. So Pickering was offending throughout the 1960s and to be named as a person of interest in each case means that he was at large in between periods of imprisonment at the times of the murders. In the case of Anne Dunwell, however, police do have a DNA profile of her killer and as he's been incarcerated for 46 years now, it's likely that his DNA profile is on the National DNA Database and therefore he'd be easily eliminated or highlighted as a suspect. However, clerical mistakes in recording an individual's DNA are made and also pioneering work in the field of DNA has revealed the existence of human chimeras that exist with two sets of DNA in them. It's not reported as to whether Pickering has been arrested on suspicion of the murder of Anne Dunwell. If he was to be, a fresh DNA sample could be taken and compared to the sample taken from her killer and a comparison made using today's technology. At the time of both unsolved killings, Pickering also arguably matched the descriptions given of persons of interest in both the Anne Dunwell and Elsie Frost cases. Look at the description of Pete, a person of interest in Anne's murder. Pete was described as being aged between 21 and 27 years of age, of medium build and between 5 foot 5 and 5 foot 6 inches tall, with a thin pockmarked face and nose. He had short dark brown hair worn in a wavy brushback style and was clean shaven. The man also drove a dark grey minivan and was known to offer lifts to people. Look now at the description of a person of interest mentioned in the reappeal over the Elsie Frost murder. A man wearing a brown, potentially duffel-type coat with dark hair who was seen on the canal towpath. He was of medium to thin build and in his early 20s. He was described as carrying a bag by some witnesses and was possibly of what was described as a scruffy or student-type appearance. Pickering was 26 and 27 years old at the times of each murder, so he'd be around the right age. His appearance has altered over time from clean-shaven to bearded, and it can be argued that he has at times looked scruffy or like a student. Now this may seem circumstantial evidence, but the facts remain. Pickering was at large at the time of each unsolved murder and was a known sexual predator who matched descriptions of persons of interest in each case. One who targeted the exact same victim type as both Anne and Elsie, one who used a vehicle in attacks, and one who was proven to have a combined method of murder from each unsolved case in the murder that he was incarcerated for, and one who was operational not just all over the Yorkshire area, and possibly further, but whose known attacks were concentrated within a relatively small geographical area.
Pickering may never face trial for the murders of Anne or Elsie. Indeed, he may yet be cleared as a suspect in one or both cases. It's not for the true crime enthusiast to assign guilt to Pickering in any of these cases, but I believe the facts of the matter, however coincidental, point to him being a very strong person of interest in each case, and one police are justified in examining closely. So has the maniac in the Marigolds claimed more lives? Time will tell. What do you think guys? Is Pickering responsible for the murders of Anne and Elsie or is it the work of somebody else? I'd love to hear your opinions as always. The discussion thread is up for you to do just that. I look forward to it as ever. Looking forward also to catching you on the usual social media, the true crime enthusiast or a slight variation on that. Or if you are after a bit more of the show, then the second bonus episode of the true crime enthusiast podcast is up exclusively for Patreon supporters for less than the price of a pint. Bargain. If you can wait, then I shall be back next week of course. Until then... I hope you all have a good and safe week, take care and I shall speak to you soon. Cheers all for joining me and goodbye for now.